Namaste and good evening to all of you. Tonight I felt uh, inspired to share with you some elements <coughs> which are relating to the spiritual attitude of devotion, of bhakti, as uh, related with the esoteric understanding of Christianity. It is a common trend in Agama that uh, many people who come to understand yoga, they know somehow they heard from other people or they understood from the site or other ways of getting in contact with Agama <coughs> that yoga is a powerful spiritual instrument and um, it happens very often, it's a common trend in Agama, that many of the people who come, uh, they have a spirituality which is, let's call it of a new age type. It's a sort of neo-spirituality. And funnily enough, although for the yogis from India and Tibet, Jesus is one of the supreme personalities of God that lived on the face of this earth. Nevertheless, such people, due to propaganda, due to the way the Western society has become in the last 50 years, uh, there are many such people who come to yoga, they would love yoga, uh, they would rather... Uh, prostrate to some Hindu deity, to a Shiva or to a Kali, but when it comes to Jesus, many have a very ambiguous relationship with Jesus and his teachings, and some in the initial stages of their yoga, as far as the Christian lineage is concerned, they are almost proclaiming themselves atheistic, agnostic, I don't want to hear about this thing, it's a, and uh, they proclaim themselves uh, almost anti-Christian, and they even have a pride in this, like that is some sort of spiritual attitude. Then of course after they do yoga in the spiritual way for a while, they get to the point where they re-evaluate Jesus and understand that scene with the measure of a yogi, Jesus is a great yogi and Jesus is giving a spiritual message of a fantastic type, of a great, great type, an understanding which is divine. I think some of the spiritual teachers in the West, a la Paramahamsa Yogananda, who taught in the West and others, they even came to the point that they called Jesus a divine model. Like, if Swami Shivananda would have had more energy, more time to do more, what would he have done? If, the, if Milarepa would have had more energy and more time, what would Milarepa have done? If Rumi could have done more with his life, he's not a yogi, but I'm taking another spiritual personality, then what would Rumi have done? And every time when this question is being asked, 
The answer is these people would have gone in the direction of Jesus. Like it's hard to assume that somebody could do more than what Jesus did. Like if you'd push it, if Swami Shivananda or Ramakrishna or somebody would have done twice as much as they have done for humanity, for history, what would have been more? And if somebody would have done ten times more, and if somebody of the great yogis, Shankaracharya or somebody, Adi Shankaracharya, would have done a hundred times more than what they have, how far can you push that limit? How far can a human being change the human history? How far can a human being impress upon other people or bring a message? And therefore, many yogis realize that when you reach to the maximum, you reach to Jesus. Like, yogis would have liked to do what Jesus did. But of course, not everybody can do what Jesus did. And therefore, yogis like Yogananda, they simply said, for us, Jesus is like a divine model. It's like we are modeling him. We wish we were like Jesus, you know, and that in three years and a half we could turn the world upside down and produce such a tsunami-like of an effect. No? And yes, there have been great yogis in India and Tibet and masters like Rumi and like Lao Tzu and in other parts of the world, I mean geographically. And still, from the standpoint of the yogis, looked through the prism of the yogis, Jesus means something very special. And that's why I'm saying this because it's a common thing and if you haven't reached it, you probably will. And it's uh, surprising in Agama that many people who come with various views on Christianity, Christ himself, after they do yoga seriously for a year or two or three, and after they have their own experiences, they feel extraordinarily connected to Jesus. There is a return upon the personality of Jesus, where many people discover that they had a divine example right in their backyard, you know, and they were looking for some yogis flying through the air from India or from Tibet. You know, but you had somebody that the yogis of India and Tibet would have bound down to, already. So, in this way, what I'm trying to say here is that whatever Christianity has become as institution, and it has been divided in so many denominations and institutionalized religion, the yogis, great yogis like Ramakrishna, Shivananda, Yogananda, and others, <coughs> they have acknowledged that Jesus was uh, a spiritual presence of first order in the history of the planet Earth. And because of this, funnily enough, for many people as they go deep in yoga, they make friends again with Jesus, although the Western society is now made almost like a hate against Christianity, a hate against the Catholic Church or whoever is the biggest boogeyman out there, a hate, <coughs> and this hate reflects, unfortunately, on the person and teachings of Jesus, 
and which are supposed to be not adequate, outdated, uh, perverted, modified, and so on and so forth. Just anything. Just say anything so that finally the bottom line is that one doesn't commune with Jesus, that Jesus is becoming an alien character. It is very relevant, uh, and I felt inspired to talk about this, to to show a few elements (laughs) from the esoteric part, Um, also because of this attitude of bhakti, which is very common in India. Agama, being a school of tantric yoga, being a school of laya yoga, kundalini yoga, hatha yoga, and other powerful yogas, which are yogas of the tantric typology. Uh, Agama being like this, of course many people gain their spiritual access here in Agama, especially with the help of of a very precise technology, like the engineering of yoga is very accurate, very powerful in Agama, and on one hand Agama gives this technical forms of yoga. And on the other hand, Agama is defined by many students as a sort of school of jnana, the aspect of jnana, the aspect of knowledge, that you do the metaphysical workshop and there a very clear clear picture of the universe emerges for you and you understand where you are placed in the big picture and what is the next step and what to do and all that. The fact that you study, as I said, Hatha, Kundalini, the fact that you study Tantric teachings about the sexual function and the use of the sexual energy, the fact that you attend a workshop like the Art of Dying and you are looking into the essential issue of death. We don't even know if you are going to have sex in this life. Sex is arguable debatable, but death is not. Like, death is more certain than sex. Some of you might approach the path of Tantra and have tons and tons of Tantric sex. Some of you might have a bad sexual karma and not get together with partners. Or some of you might choose to be celibate and then you will not get into a sexual life. So, sex is not guaranteed. But death is death is much more certain than the fact that you are going to have sex a lot or a little in this life. So therefore, what I'm telling to you here, art of dying, you know, presenting an issue which is absolutely fundamental. You can live without sex, but you cannot live without death. Death is in the menu for sure. And thus, what I'm trying to say, all these teachings and many others that we have, are giving a lot of knowledge. They are showing you first what the phenomena are, what is truly happening from the standpoint of metaphysics and yoga, and on the other hand, they are giving you the methods, what to do. And those methods are accurate, and as you know it very well, people have been coming to Agama for the last 14 years and more, because those methods work. Simply because these things actually work. 
Agama is not selling illusions, dreams, phantasmagoric things. It sells a technology which is not belonging to us. It is passed on for generations. And therefore, in Agama, having these technicalities of yoga, that people are like doing an experiment. Let's see what's happening if I stand on my head 10 minutes every day for the next six months. It's an experiment. And because of this, and because of the attitude of jnana, that there is a clear knowledge about the chakras, about the energy, about mantras, about a lot of other phenomena that we use in our system, for many people this diminishes the aspect of bhakti. Although in India, because the temperament of the people is more warm and loving and affectionate, and because of this there appears a lot of devotion, and yoga is often done together with devotion. Sometimes there is so much devotion embedded in yoga that some people almost feel that they lose yoga and they drown in devotion. Nevertheless, when yoga is done technically, and especially since we are not in India, and of course people are doing sometimes kirtan and bhajan, and we are doing heart chakra meditations and so on, but definitely everybody who makes a comparison between a devotional Hindu organization from India and the atmosphere in Agama, the atmosphere in Agama is more like that of a university, and people are in search of knowledge, and people are in search of meditation, and people are in search of experimenting and having spiritual experiences. And that automatically makes us lose a very important dimension, because both in the Indian yoga, even in the Tibetan yoga up till a certain extent, and definitely in the Western counterpart, when we talk about Jesus and the message of Jesus, in all these spiritualities, not to mention intermediary forms like uh, the Sufi mysticism in the areas between India and Western Christianity, geographically speaking, uh, in all of those there exists a lot of bhakti, there exists a lot of devotion. Spiritual life is accompanied by a lot of devotion. Here in Agama, our yoga halls are our temple. We had great yogis endowed with sensitivity who stepped in our yoga halls, which they had never seen before, and they confessed that they felt like they were in a temple, like the energy was hallowed in a place like in the Shiva hall or places where people do lots of retreats, lots of meditation, lots of workshops are happening there. The energy is becoming very powerful from a spiritual standpoint. And it's exactly like you are stepping in a church. This thing was known even the martial artists, while the martial arts today, for most people, they have become a sort of self-defense and street fighting. Exactly as yoga for some people has become fitness and aerobics. But the martial artists, 
the traditional martial artists, when they entered in their own training halls, which in Japan they called dojos, they always bowed down at the entrance. It's like when you enter the dojo, the dojo is not a place where you experience street fighting and self-defense. The dojo is a place where you find the divine. The dojo is the place where you find the enlightenment. Therefore, the dojo is a sacred space. Here in Agama, we don't have the sacred space under the form of a church or a temple or an altar. There are a few statues of uh, tantric deities from India because we are a tantric school and for some people there exists this tantra bhakti, this bhakti from the heart. But on the other hand, Agama does not have a temple hall, a place where liturgies or masses or communions or other things are being celebrated. Not because it would be wrong, but simply because it's not the typology of Agama. That Agama is not that type of school. However, from time to time, I have to remind to the community that because of us being in Thailand and not in India, because of the style of this school being as it is, because of the teachers of this school having a style in which we teach more based on understanding, on conveying the jnana, the knowledge. Because of this, many people don't see, don't manage to see the devotional dimension. That still the practice of spirituality contains in it something devotional. And without this devotional aspect of bhakti, we don't understand our own aspiration. That the aspiration which comes from jivatman, which comes from the, from the soul, this aspiration is an irrational factor. It is something which moves us, sometimes without us understanding exactly why it moves us and how it moves us. And our devotion sometimes produces tears of devotion, and we feel irrationally like we are returning home, and we feel a connection with the spiritual reality that we feel unworthy of, and that's why we feel humbled by the contact with the Spirit, and we feel gratitude because we are brought in the per in the presence of eternity of immortality and it's like what could we have done so good in our lives that we deserve eternity try to think the more you'll be in yoga and in spirituality you will see Although yoga is connecting you with the rest of the world and it makes you understand the human being and makes you aim for a harmonious development of the human being, nevertheless, after 5 or 10 or 15 years of yoga, you are going to see that those of you that manage to stay on the path, every day and every year which passes, you feel more and more privileged. 
because you realize that it's a special karma to be into this. 99.9% of the population doesn't do it. And I'm not saying it like that's a complex of superiority, that we in this room are cool and the others out there are losers. I'm not saying it in this way. I'm saying it in the fact, through the fact that the fact that your mind focuses on divine issues is a privilege. It's a privilege. You meet with people and their mind is completely elsewhere. It's in a totally different place. And thus, what I'm trying to say is that in our aspiration, there exists always a share of devotion. And most of you, when you decide to cancel an airplane, (coughs) to resign from a job, to interrupt some stupid relationship which is draining you and killing your soul slowly, slowly, when you decide to become a yoga teacher, when you decide to do spiritual practice for the next 20 years of your life, this is not possible without a certain madness, without a certain love, without a certain overwhelming feeling which comes from inside you. And that's why even when the spiritual practice is based on pure knowledge and scientific experiment, and yoga is presented as rationally and as down-to-earth as possible, which we try very much to do in Agama, nevertheless, underlying all this, is always a bhakti, is always a love for the self, there is always a love for God, there is always a love for the reality. Being in love with what is reality. Having this madness that if I don't discover who I truly am, if I don't discover what reality is, then I feel my soul is going to die. I feel like I'm choking and I feel like my life is not worth a bit. I cannot judge the others why they live the way they live. But I can simply say, if I would be put in their shoes, I would feel it like a punishment. I would feel like that's not the life which I want to live. It doesn't mean that I am more cool than them. It can mean that I am handicapped, and they are the really brave people and the heroes who take life in their chest, and they can live with whatever, doing the hard chores of life, and I'm the chicken who runs in a corner, who stays in a corner and stays away from all that. It doesn't mean, it doesn't, I don't need to state that I am on a superior position. It's enough for me to realize that I'm on a different position. My position is just different. Better, worse, I don't know. Nobody can be the judge of that. Of course, we who are in spirituality, we consider our life blessed. And we are grateful for what we receive because it seems that there is so much blessing in that. Ultimately, the spiritual person, however, 
is supposed to live in a state of humbleness. Because we don't know if we are better or if we are handicapped compared to the rest of the population. Maybe spirituality, some people have said it, maybe spirituality is just a handicap, it's a mental handicap. It's like we are a bit bazako in our head. No, we feel happy with being the bazakos that we are. But ultimately, if we want to practice humbleness and modesty, we don't brag that we are better than the others or something. We can only have this thing, that my personal choice is this. I have made my choices in life, and I live with my choices in life. If it's better, if it's worse, if it makes no difference in the end, who will know? How will I find the answer before I discover the universal truth? In the Mahabharata, because I was just talking with somebody recently about Mahabharata, in the Mahabharata, in the end, Yudhishthira discovers that, or Arjuna, I forgot who of them, discovers that his mother and his brothers, who in all that novel are the good guys, they are in a dark, stinky, foul, horrible place, which sounds very much like hell. And his enemies, Duryodhana and his 99 brothers, who are supposed to be the bastards, they are in paradise, drinking Soma, drinking immortality. And he's puzzled. He says, this doesn't sound right. We always fought for us to do the right thing. And in the end, the enemies are in paradise, and my family is in hell. What, what kind of justice is it? Like, we were not taught that. And Dharma, his father, which is a principle of the universe, it's a, it's a cosmic principle. Dharma is telling him, and thus, O Yudhishthira, your last illusion has been dispelled. No, like there is the illusion that if I behave nice, I go to paradise, and those who behave bad go to hell. Even that is a rule, it's a maya, it's a sort of illusion created by the mind. Even that, in the big picture, you cannot guarantee for it. There is no way of guaranteeing for it. The world is built in such a way that the universal spirit hides and hides its fundamental laws in such a way that you see people who do Genghis Khan-like things and they live well and they are honored and they live long lives and you see people who save 200,000 lives literally in a war or in a conflict and who five years later they go and commit suicide they hang themselves and they die in a, like, where is the justice? Where is God? Where is the karma? But these things are so much beyond the human perception, and the human perception is always trying to validate everything with the mind and with the ego. <laughs> and the same thing is this thing with spirituality, that in spirituality we have this devotion we have this search for immortality. Somebody who has been involved for 20 years in the spiritual life, 
has had good days, bad days, has had difficulties, has had great accomplishments, has had, and therefore it has been a struggle. It's, there is no victory without difficulties. There is always a path to climb. And you wouldn't stay on that path for 20 years, not to mention that some people have been in spirituality for 50 years or more. You wouldn't stay a lifetime in this without loving the truth, without loving God, without loving the Dharma. Because many people think that spiritual life is fun. And when you come and do the first level intensive, your aspiration is going through the roof and you are going crazy. And the first three months, you are in the country where there are rivers of honey and milk. That's the definition of paradise. That in paradise, there are rivers of honey and milk. Those of you who may be allergic to milk and allergic to honey, you are screwed if you go to paradise, because in paradise there are rivers of milk and honey. So, um, therefore, in the, for in the beginning, when you discover that there is something that you could do with your life and with the universe, you live in paradise. But after you've been in the spiritual life for 10 years, you know that there are days which are not paradise at all. Because it's impossible not to have hills and valleys. It's impossible not to have yin and yang. It's impossible not to have difficulties. So, spiritual life is not milk and honey all day long. Spiritual life is not just smiles and laughters. Spiritual life is not that you feel good all day long. Then spiritual life would be like a long, long heroin injection. And it's not. And therefore, we don't resist in spiritual life without a certain motivation. And that motivation is the fact that we love. We love what we do. If our heart is not in it, we practice spirituality for three months or for three years, and then we fall off the path. That's why even when there is not an open attitude of bhakti, Bhakti towards a guru, bhakti to Jesus, bhakti to God, bhakti to Kali, bhakti to Shiva, whatever. Even when that attitude is subdued to a certain extent, nevertheless, it does exist. The people who truly understand spirituality, they know that it comes from that. Because if we do something without love, we can't do it for a lifetime. Eventually it becomes a, an egoistic bargain. That's why Jesus even tells us that the relationship with the divinity is of three levels. Like in India, the Pashu, Virya and Divya. No, three, three human levels, three human qualities. And he says there are people who do the will of God out of fear. Like if you break the commandments of God, God is going to hit you with a lightning bolt. And you're going to be cursed. And when you die, you'll go to hell. 
And he says, those are the slaves of God. Only the slaves do the commandments of God because they are afraid of the punishment. And then on the second level, those which are better than the cattle, better than the slaves, Jesus says, then there are those who do the will of God because of advantages to be obtained from that. And those are the merchants of God. Like there are people who are smart enough who understand if you create a good karma, you know, you make a lot of money in Hollywood and you give 10% in charity. And then you make an even better karma and you are friendly with God and then you can live a good life. But your good life is actually a selfish life in which you intelligently have paid your taxes to God. And then the universe has nothing against you. You are okay with the universe, and still your existence is, this is the rajasic type. This is, these are the merchants of God, the people who are trading with God. And then he says, there are those who make, who fulfill the divine laws out of love. Like they don't need anything. So they simply love to fulfill the divine laws. And those are the sons of God. Because the son doesn't need to be given anything in exchange. is not afraid. The son does it because it's an ecstasy to do it. It's an act of love to do it. It's the same thing with the spirituality. If you don't manage to do your Hatha Yoga with love, with love for your immortal soul, with love for your Atman, with love for God, with love for Dharma, for the universal law. If you don't manage to do all these things with love, then eventually you will break. That's why a thousand people start on the path of yoga, and ten years later or twenty years later, there are ten that have reached the state of Samadhi. Out of a thousand, ten. It's a pyramid. Because most people fall off the path before they reach to the top. It's not that yoga doesn't work. It does. And it would. But provided that you constantly stay on the path with this loving attitude. In the moment when you are just afraid... Or in the moment when you try to buy something, to trade, that at some point ends. You find yourself after five years, or after ten years, you find yourself into a dead end, and then there is no motivation to continue. So, only when we do things with this bhakti, with this devotion, that's when the spiritual practice is done right. And in the bhakti environment, it's a sort of a win-win because you practice devotion and that devotion is nourishing you. In a place where you do things more in a jnana way, then there exists this risk that people forget this dimension of their practice. Forgetting the dimension, this dimension of the spiritual practice 
is taking away a lot of joy from the spiritual practice. Like the spiritual practice is becoming tense. It becomes like, ah, I have to do this. It's a, it becomes a matter of sheer will. And at the same time, one of the biggest dangers which we see in the path of Jesus as being forestalled, as being eliminated, is precisely the fact that spirituality is practiced with a certain degree of humbleness. Humility, as Mahatma Gandhi said, is the solid foundation of all the other virtues. And humility, as St. Paul, the Apostle of Christ, says, it's one of the direct outcomes of love. If I have love, I can have humbleness. And spiritual practice without humbleness, you don't see it. When you see Rumi, when you see Milarepa, when you see Shankaracharya or Ramakrishna, when you see any of the great ones from any environment, you don't find a single one of them that had arrogance and vanity. You can find masters that have been faster or slower. You can see spiritual masters that had a sense of humor or some of them which were taking everything very seriously. You can see spiritual teachers that were more like this or more like that. But you will not see a single one of them from any tradition that was arrogant and proud and full of vanity. In the Christian environment, vanity is worse than murder. Murder is one of the seven capital sins, while vanity is the cause of failure of the devil himself. In the Jewish, Christian, and Islamic mysticism, Satan is fallen because of pride. So actually, spiritually speaking, pride is worse than murder. If you kill somebody, which I don't recommend that you should do, but if you kill somebody, your soul is less polluted that if you are arrogant, vain, and full of pride. When you are arrogant, vain, full of pride, when you don't have humility and modesty, then you are closer to spiritual disaster even than if you kill somebody. That's why it's important to reawaken in ourselves periodically this aspect of the heart because we do our practice with the heart and that's why Jesus who is a model he comes and gives us a practice from the heart like directly love God he says things which sound impossible he says be perfect as your father in heaven is what madness is this that a human being longs for perfection. 
We even say nobody is perfect. And if we say nobody is perfect, then why does Jesus, the madman, say be perfect? Like your father in heaven is. What is this desperate attempt for us to reach something which is of the nature of the absolute, which is of the nature of perfection? That we are in love with it, that we love something idealistic, perfect, and in front of that something we can only be humble. Even Milarepa, who spent 40 years in the wilderness doing incredible spiritual practice, incredible amounts of spiritual practice. It's like a whole, a whole school of yoga put together doesn't do as many hours of yoga as Milarepa alone did. No, it's like Milarepa is a giant among human beings. And even Milarepa, when he is poisoned by an envious idiot, he endures pain, he endures humbleness, he endures a lot of things, and although you can see there that there is a common world of the spiritual people, that Shambhala manages to gather together all the spiritual personalities, because there are some general features which result from this quest for the oneness, from this love that we have. So this is where I come from when I'm talking to you about esoteric Christianity and things which interpreted from Christianity, they correspond perfectly to things which are being done in yoga, both Indian and Tibetan, and in the tantric traditions, and others. It's very beautiful that in the message of the Christ, first of all, we are always reminded of this path of the heart, that spirituality starts from the heart. Our aspiration starts from the heart. And then when we do yoga from the heart, it's like the famous paradigm of the female devotee who is going to meet with her boyfriend, with her lover. There is a famous legend in Eastern Europe of a woman who is going to meet her husband. In some it's a legend and for some it's a fairy tale. There exist two versions of it. And she's going through everything, through storm, through upheaval, like nothing can stop her because she is longing to meet with her lover, the lover being the symbol of God. The soul is like female, and God is like male. That's why a Dutch mystic, Ruisbroek, has called it the divine weddings, the, the marriage of the soul with God, that prayer, meditation, spiritual practice, is like your soul is a bride and the groom is God himself. And it's all about a spiritual marriage. So, <clears throat> I'm saying all these things because I want to remind from time to time about the cultivation of the spirit of the heart, 
of the practice from the heart. And I think that uh, some of the elements from the Christian mysticism, they are reminding us of these things. Generally, scholars define a sort of a Western tradition and an Eastern tradition. The Eastern wisdom of Krishna and Buddha and the great masters of the East and the Western mysticism focus mostly around Jesus. We have a tantric tradition in the West which speaks about correlations and correspondences and we have a hermetic tradition in the West which speaks about the same correlations and correspondences. There are five elements in the Chinese medicine and in the medicine of the Far East, in the metaphysics, and there are five elements in the mysticism of the West, and they are completely similar and corresponding to the chakras from yoga and all that. So the mystical tradition is universal. The Hindus even say that there was a time when there was just one mysticism, Sanatana Dharma, the one Dharma, the unique Dharma, which then, like in the myth of the Tower of Babel, it has split in countless languages and dialects and this, and everybody has got a religion of their own, <coughs> which apparently contradict each other, and it's the Tower of Babel, that's the symbol of Babel. In the same way, Western mysticism, Eastern mysticism, they are not different. They are coming from the same root. And in the West, the Hermetic tradition created much of the Egyptian mysticism and some of the Babylonian astrology and alchemy and magic and traditions like the Kabbalistic tradition of the Jewish mysticism and the Gnostic tradition of the Christians and the Sufi tradition of the Islamic religion. Like in every one of them, there is an esoteric part, which is the inner circle, which is special knowledge given to few people. And then there is a mass knowledge given to everybody, which is much more diluted. In the same way, in the East, you find the popular trends of Hinduism, Buddhism, and others, while in some places people are doing Tibetan yoga, Indian yoga, tantric practices, and others. And that's, of course, the inner circle, the tradition which is for a limited number of people. In the same way, in Christianity, which for most of you is the spiritual root from where you come, or some of you who are Jewish in the Kabbalistic traditions, or for some of you who may be Islamic, Muslim, in the Sufi traditions of there, we always find this esoteric core, that some people can have aversion to this institutionalized religion, and I know I had it. No, I was grown up in an atheistic state, by a rationalist scientific family, and uh, no, I stood in the position where I looked with contempt upon religion, Christianity in particular, and other such things. And yet, the interesting thing is that when we discover yoga, and when we discover the path of the heart, that everything goes through the heart, and that if we don't love 
our discovery of divinity, then we, we can't stay on the path. It's not a chore. It's something which we love with all our hearts and we are ready to do it for the next 50 years of our life. We live with it and we die with it because it's the right thing. It's, it's the love for truth, for God, for the path, for reality. And thus, in the esoteric Christianity, we discover the same roots which we have in yoga and in the esoteric traditions. And I just made a short list of some of the elements, more like calling your attention on facts which exist there between the lines and which uh, are teaching us and sometimes they are reflecting back things from yoga. I started with things related to fasting and diet. Like, it's a known thing that in many Christian directions, as well as in some of the Judaic and Islamic ones, there exists a whole mysticism of fasting. Like the Sufis go in the desert and they fast without water for five days, not even water. It's called the Blue Death. And sometimes they go for more than, they go seven days or more, and then it's called the Black Death. No? And they are doing such practices. Why? Because even the Native Americans, the shamans of the native cultures of America, they were making people fast and go on vision quests. And after seven days of fasting and using herbs and so on, then people had vision of their totemic soul, of their animal soul, and uh, which they carried in their life for all their lives. It became the guiding life, like one experience which you have when you come of age, when you are, let's say, 18 years old, and then you have that experience as the guiding light for the next 60 years of your life. You live with it. <coughs> so, let's not forget interesting connections, which are just food for the thoughts. I want to show you how many things are common. Fasting in days, in different days of the week. That if you fast on Monday, it's not the same effect as if you fast on Friday. Or if you fast on Tuesday. So fasting different days of the week is actually related with the fact that the seven days of the week correspond to the seven visible planets or celestial bodies of the solar system. Sunday for the sun, Monday for the moon, Tuesday for Mars, Wednesday for Mercury, Thursday for Jupiter, Friday for Venus, Saturday for Saturn. And therefore, if you fast in a certain day, you open up and you catch the energy of that day. So fasting on Monday makes you more lunar, and fasting on Sunday makes you more solar. It's a huge difference to fast Monday or Sunday. Biologically, it's the same, that 24 hours you don't take food. But energetically... 
mystically, this leads to a totally different type of experience. The fact that fasting is used as a tapas, exactly as in India and in Tibet, many yogis with tapasya, they gain spiritual merit, they created merit of different kinds. Fasting has been used both in Christianity in the West and in the East for the so-called burning sins, which is a way of saying burning karma, destroying negative karma. Or fasting has been used for fulfilling goals. I want that thing and I'm ready to fast. In the beautiful novel of Hermann Hesse called Siddhartha, which you should all read, If you like spiritual literature, that's one of the top 10, 20 pieces of spiritual literature in the history of the modern literature of this planet. And then in Siddhartha, suddenly from a yogi, he's supposed to become a wealthy person who can sponsor a courtesan. And people are asking him, you are a bum. You have no skills in society. How will you, and how will you manage to do this? And he says, it's true that I don't have skills, but I can think, like I can visualize my goals, I can fast, and I can wait. And if I can wait and think and fast, I'm going to fulfill whatever. The impossible becomes possible. So fasting has been used for fulfilling goals, not just on a defensive level for burning karma, or things like this. Fasting has been used for spiritual phenomena, long-term fasting. Moses, before he received the Ten Commandments, he fasted for 40 days. Jesus, before he started his ministry in the world, he fasted for 40 days. And the list can continue. So fasting has been considered to be that if you don't eat. It's not just a physiological phenomenon. There is a spiritual purification which results from the fact of not eating and connecting (coughs) with the cosmic energies. Because in the moment when you don't eat, you have to be partly sustained by cosmic energies. There are experiments in the medical world of fasting There have been yogis and other people who fasted more than 110 days, non-stop, like in a row. And fasting means just water for 110 days. Like in Hollywood movies, you see somebody who didn't eat for 18 hours, and they are swinging on their feet and they are about to die. That's a joke. It's made by idiots who never fasted a day of their life. Because there are people who fasted more than 110 days and they are still alive. 110 days. Therefore, not to mention that Mahatma Gandhi fasted together more than 90 days when he did his fasting for nonviolence and others. So fasting has been related to finding the meaning of life, the mission of life. Some people would not go further in some things in their life without fasting. So fasting can be considered a a dietary thing because fasting in Christianity has a double meaning. There's fasting like black fast, which means you eat no 
calories, zero calories, nothing which contains the slightest sugar, protein, fat, no calories. And then there is fasting, which is a dietary fasting, which is actually vegan diet. It's the so-called Lenten days. And there were 217 Lenten days per year in traditional Christianity. Every Wednesday and Friday. Very often every Monday, like Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Every other day in the week was supposed that you wouldn't touch animal products. None whatsoever. So they are vegan. Not only meat, but no eggs, no dairy, no nothing of animal origin. No? And there were 40 days of Lent before Christmas. And there were 40 to 49 days of Lent before Easter. And there are 15 days of Lent before St. Mary's, which is 15th of August, just has been happening. So it was a Christian Lent from the 1st to the 15th of August for those who are concerned with these kinds of things. And in the Lent, you go vegan. And you practice more. My teacher in chiropractice who was a hardcore, in the Lenten days, he didn't take oil. He didn't take any fat in his diet. Like he ate completely dry in this way. So there are different ways. So another very important element is the art of prayer. Very few people understand the art of prayer. The Hindu and Tibetan gurus they create, because especially India is so prone to prayer, they have created a special culture of prayer in Bhakti Yoga. We explain that we have a mini Bhakti Yoga retreat in February every year, just before the Mahashivaratri. So people who want to prepare three, four, five days with bhajans, kirtans and bhakti, they prepare for the great celebration of Mahashivaratri. And... There, we explain to people, we show the mysteries of Indian bhakti, which is not as simple that you are just going to some ashram and people are doing some kirtan and bhajan, and that's it. There are different attitudes to be cultivated, like God, let's say God for you is Shiva. God is for you a friend or a father or a lover or a master, because you relate in a different way to a lover and to a father. And thus, there are many mysteries of this bhakti element of the, of the prayer, and there is an art of prayer. And the Hindu gurus, because of their vast knowledge of tantra and of yoga, they created the bhakti which is based on the technology of yoga in which one of the most important things is the repetition of mantras. Like, you can see that in some religions, they have some endless prayers. Sometimes there is freestyle prayer, where some preacher starts raving, telling you a sort of prayer of his own, you know. In some religions, they just reproduce prayers. Like, there is the prayer of St. Augustine. There is the prayer of St. Basil the Great. You don't invent a prayer. You just walk in the footsteps of Augustine or of Basil or others 
And you are not supposed to invent prayers because you might perform blasphemy. You might say blasphemic things out of ignorance. Therefore, the prayer is a path which is trodden carefully. In India, in Tibet, they found rather this way, that better you take a formula, either it's a short formula like Om Namah Shivaya, or it's a longer formula like Om Burbu Vasvahat Savitur Vareniam, and all that. And you take that formula short or long, and you just say it again and again and again and again, and again you don't improvise. You don't start adding your own words in the middle of Gayatri Mantra. Gayatri Mantra is Gayatri Mantra. You cannot say the word bugger, you know. Om Borbu Vasvaha, bugger tat savitur varenyam, you know. This, this is a blasphemy. It doesn't exist, right? You are supposed to walk exactly in the footsteps of what is being said there. So it seems to take away creativity and originality, but the actual creativity and originality is residing precisely in the psychic state which results from the repetition of the mantra. That japa can seem monotonous, but you are saying it and saying it and saying it, and at some moment it starts producing a state of trance. And that state of trance is where the real creativity manifests. Not on the foundation. On the foundation, you are just using a starter. But that starter is taking you somewhere. The same principle is partly used in the Western Christian prayer, where the most famous Eastern prayer of the Eastern part of Christianity is the legendary prayer of the heart. And the prayer of the heart is ultimately a mantra. Many people uh, un- trying to understand this, those, if those of you who want to go deeper, there exists a famous anonymous work in Christian mysticism which is called the Russian Pilgrim. Try to find it. Google it. I'm sure it's for free on the internet. Take the Russian. It's 110 pages. It's amazing because this man was using the prayer of the heart And he describes incredible results. He said, when I was hungry and there was nobody to give me food because he was a beggar, he said, I just said the prayer of the heart double as hard, and then my hunger disappeared for hours and hours. When I was cold and I was not, I was in the fields, in the forest or something, and had no shelter, I just prayed double power. I put more power in the prayer, then my body got warm and insensitive. I couldn't feel the temperature outside and so on. So, the very technology of prayer, in India and Tibet it was easier because of yoga. They immediately realized that there have to be positions of the body, like mudras, that the prayer is not done standing like this. No, that's not a position for prayer, right? Position for prayer tends to contain positions of the body which are reverent and interiorized. Because it's like asanas in hatha yoga. You help yourself by the position of the body to achieve something. When you want to open your heart chakra, you don't go like this. You do the cobra pose. So that the energy can come here. So the position of the body, of course, will help. And they would use mantras. They would prefer to take a formula and repeat that formula millions of times until it would produce effects. And uh, it's very interesting to see the similarities 
of how prayer is being conducted. The more we come towards the 20th century, the more people are practicing sort of freestyle prayer, which is just babbling and raving, whatever comes to your mind. The more you go to the traditional forms, the prayer is a locked formula, which you are not supposed to change, because that puts your mind in a condition, and then it starts bringing the energy up. There is an upsurge of energy, which is called prayer of the heart, that then the prayer has reached your essence, your heart, and it's not something which just happens in your mind, but it's something which happens in your being. And that's why the prayer of the heart, for example, is associated with body positions, gestures, and even with breathing. There are clear technologies of breathing, like it is done during Kumbhaka, during Purna Kumbhaka. You put two fingers above your physical heart, you inhale with your head on one side, and then when you hold your breath inside, you say, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then you exhale. So you are actually doing it during the retention of the breath, like in the pranayama of yoga. And thus, many, many of these things exist, and many of the great mystics have rediscovered. The great Russian saint Seraphim of Sarov, his disciples asked him, you come to church, we all know that you are a person blessed with divine visions and all that, and you come to church every Sunday for the Mass, and you are standing there very disciplined for the Mass, and you are not playing prima donna or something like this. So we would like to know, you know, like we sometimes might get bored by the fact that every morning, every morning is the same service, the same Mass. What do you do? And... Seraphim of Sarov described the yogic technique of Trataka. He simply said, I'm fixing my eyes on a face of Jesus on an icon, or if there is none in view on a candle, I'm looking for a candle, and I'm fixing my eyes in it, and the liturgy goes for two hours and a half, and meanwhile I'm looking without blinking or winking in that candlelight. Basically, Seraphim said, during religious service, I do Trataka for two hours and a half. To be in that state of prayer, to be in that state of trance, to be in that state of heightened sensitivity. So, the fathers of the desert, who were having a very, very poor technology, they supplemented it with a huge aspiration. The fathers of the desert have often been witnessed praying in a standing position, like doing Tadasana. And they would stand, some of them were witnessed standing for more than 15 hours. Besides the fathers of the desert, we had the stylites. The stylites, stylus in Latin, or in Greek maybe, but I think it's in Latin, stylus means a pen, like a pencil. And they are called stylites because they are living, they are building some towers which were like a pen, and they were standing on top of it. The stylites, Simeon the stylite was the first one, but they are it's written with Y, S-T-Y, if you want to Google it, stylites. The stylites 
were men and women who did prayer on a 30 meter tower, having no contact with the earth for like 30 years. They were building themselves a tower. The most simple tower was a, a fir tree, a big Christmas tree, with the top sewed off and with a little platform made. That platform was like maximum one meter by one meter. They didn't have place to lie down. Ever. Like they never got off their stylus. They got on top of the stylus like a stork on a pole. And they stayed there for the rest of their lives. And they received food with a bucket. The people were giving them food with a little bucket. They, and if nobody gave them food, they didn't go down to search for food. And the only way you could pray on that stylus was most of the time standing on a 30 meter pole and standing like this. Like 15 hours. People were down there and they could watch you. And you would stand the whole day long like this and pray. I friendly challenge you to do 30 minutes of prayer with your arms up. Some of you complain that 4 minutes of Tadasana in the class is too much and you go like this. Oh my God, you know. What would be 15 hours? No, like, that's what we're talking about. Yeah, we're talking about a trance, a state of mind in which the human being is going outside of himself or herself, being in contact with a much deeper layer of their being. People have practiced technology of prayer in isolation. Like, for example, I even knew personally one such monk. Every winter he went into a cave which somewhere around November got sealed in ice. So he was isolated by a wall of ice inside a small cave the whole winter. He could come out in April. And he had a little sachet with fried wheat, parched wheat, and he would eat every day a little bit of fried wheat, crunchy, like this. He would just crunch a little bit of wheat, and uh, his feces would be like a sheep's feces, you know. He would just shit a little olive now and then, you know, in a corner of his cave. And that's how he lived the whole winter. Completely isolated in a cave with a sack of wheat and just doing prayer. If he didn't do prayer, he could talk to the walls. Like either you go crazy or you connect with something much deeper going beyond that. So, prayer in isolation, prayer of awareness in the f histories of the fathers of the desert, is one of the elders who is doing some manual work. They even did manual work in parallel with the prayer, you know, like to keep yourself busy, not to fall into idleness and laziness. They would do manual work, like usually kneading wee baskets, having straw and making baskets out of straw. So you'd be weaving baskets manually all day long. And meanwhile, they would go with a prayer. And this elder that was mentioned in the Fathers of the Desert, he would constantly practice awareness. He would do this, and after 30 seconds, he would stop and say, Brothers, brothers, where are we? What is happening right now? Who are we? And then he would continue praying and doing baskets. And then after 30 seconds, he would again say, but brothers, brothers, again, where are we? Who are we? No? It sounds like dumb 
until you have done vipassana or something similar, and then you realize that the power of awareness is exactly a spiritual essence. And <clears throat> prayer, which is done for various purposes, more mundane, more trite, power, which, a prayer which is done for healing, like the famous holy oil, the sanctification of oil and other substances, salt, wheat, and others, which are given to sick people for their healing, or practice like anointment for healing, or prayer for sanctifying places or objects. There are, in many of the Christian places, that a priest can come to your house and sanctify your house, bless your house for the next six months. And some of these things are being measured. Like, of course, the skepticism is there because we don't understand this power of succession, this apostolic power. I'll talk about it uh, to the end of this uh, as, by the way, of esoteric aspect. You know how the esoteric power is being transmitted there. But, for example, scientists, parapsychologists, they wanted to know why holy water is considered to be a special kind of water. Because ultimately, holy water means that the priest is coming and praying over the water, and he's placing a silver cross in it, and usually some basil leaves. So the holy water is made with basil and silver, and with prayer, some blessings and prayers said above it. In India, for example, just to give you a... The tantrics also prepare consecrated water, holy water, but they do it by using a mantra. So it's the same, the same thing in two different traditions. And the scientists have said, ah, holy water is just placebo. It's just that people believe in it. But actually, you know, they made measurements. Open-minded scientists, they said, let's measure normal water, holy water, made from the same water. The same water. What's different between them? Density, boiling point, transparency, what? And they found just one coefficient in all these years. They found that holy water differs in one coefficient. Not the boiling temperature is the same. The transparency is the same. Everything is the same. The density is the same. All of it is the same except one thing which varies violently. And that thing, I don't know how many of you know so much physics as to understand that, is a physical factor which is called the superficial tension, or otherwise said the coefficient of viscosity. That water which is blessed changes its superficial tension, which is a very clear physical parameter which causes some very important things there. But there is... It has been identified that blessed water, if water has been preyed upon, something changes. Exactly as quantum mechanics, physics, they have said that if you watch an electron in an experiment, it behaves in one way. And if you close the door and turn your back on it and you don't watch it, in the end you will see that the electron has behaved in a different way. How does the electron know that somebody looks upon it or not? It's a complete mystery. Like until today, physics 
doesn't know what to make of this fact. What is the explanation that elementary and sub-elementary particles behave in a different way when a human being observes them or not? It's a nonsense. And yet it's demonstrated scientifically. Which shows that elementary particles are alive in a way. Because they respond to our attention. To our awareness. So of course when we pray for water. Or when we pray for blessing something. That's why people. The Tibetan gurus. Because they were generally very poor. And they didn't have. They would give. Like they would take a yellow piece of cloth, this yellow saffron which the Tibetans had for their clothes. They would break a square, they would cut a little square like four centimeter by four centimeter. They would write a mantra on it and then they would bless it. And then they would give it to you like it's auspicious, like keep it in your pocket. And it's like a talisman which can protect you. No, even we give in Agama ceremonies, we give a protective thread. No, people think sometimes it's just a convention. But actually, this is the result of the act of prayer, of the art of prayer, of blessing, that prayer has so many applications. The Gnostics of Egypt, in their texts, they have even have the bedchamber prayers. Prayers which are to be done during lovemaking. There is a wonderful movie which was a TV series and I don't manage to find it on DVD. It's one of the movies which went like this to the fingers and we kind of, it's not been produced or edited, re-edited, digitally mastered or whatever it's called. It's called Peter the Great with Omar Sharif and it's about, of course, the... Peter the Great, the great Tsar of Russia. And there, there is a scene where Peter the Great eventually, he veers, he steers away from his wife, and he's going with some German hookers from St. Petersburg, and the reason is that his wife, which is a staunch Russian Orthodox woman, in the moment when he starts kissing her body to make love to her, in the moment when she starts feeling goosebumps and that she's turned on, she starts praying with loud voice. And that destroys his erections completely, you know, like he can't get a hard on when his wife is praying. Which is very strange because the Gnostics say, why not? It's like sex belongs to the devil or what? Like, why can't you be with God? while you are making love. People all the time try to steer away from it. No? It's enough to look in the porno industry to see their body language. Everybody, when they have sex, they are wicked. No? Men and women have sex in porno movies and they always go like... <laughs> What's this, you know? Why can't I have the face of an angel when I'm making love? What is, why do I have to play like in a theater, like in a puppet theater? I'm playing like something monstrous. It's like, why can't it be done with love and with transfiguration, with divinity? The same thing appears in the Catholic environment. There is a 
Italian novel called Il Gatto Pardo, it means the cheetah, this African animal, and the cheetah is a powerful Italian industrialist, a capitalist. And it's the same thing. Somebody is asking him, why do you cultivate hookers all day long? Why don't you stay with your wife? And he says, because my wife is a stupid Catholic, and every time I'm trying to bone her, she starts praying. Some people are turned off by prayer. While some Christian traditions say you should pray. That's the best time to pray. Pray to God while you are making love. Then you have to be in communion with the divine aspects. So, a lot of things exist in the art of prayer. And I want to, like I gave you so many food for thought, so many ideas, and so many styles of it. I just want you to remember that we, we have from the art of praying resulting blessing and exorcism and of course uh, from the prayer in this world of devotion which again exists in many yogas of India and Tibet there are even uh, witnesses of astral experiences and invisible worlds uh, even references to the chakras in some of the Gnostic scriptures of course they are not called chakras like in the book of the Zohar, Zohar, in the Jewish Kabbalistic book of Zohar, they are called the seven crystal palaces. And in, uh, I forgot right now the names of it, in one of the Gnostic Gospels of Christianity, again Jesus is explaining about the seven places, the seven levels of consciousness, exactly corresponding to the chakras. So, a lot is resulting from the art of prayer, kundalini rising, visions, and divinization of men. What is important for you to know, it is the same thing as with yoga. We tell to people, when we teach you Shambhavi Mudra, when we teach you Trataka, and when we teach you forms of meditation, we say the greatest struggle in spirituality is the taming of the mind. That's why people can very easily do monkey yoga, where they listen to Madonna while they do their yoga, because the mind is completely ordinary, and that's not yoga. And when it comes to silent yoga, when it comes to focused yoga, then you start losing some people. No, because it's like the whole thing is the taming of the mind. And this taming of the mind is the one which is opposed most. And when we teach you Shambhavi Mudra and others, the teachers are challenging you and they are telling you, most of you won't, unfortunately won't do this. Like we can rub it in your face. It's a challenge. It's the glove is right there on the floor. You know, who dares to pick up the challenge? No, because it's a known thing that the mind opposes to discipline and when you try to do something with a mind like this, that's exactly what you don't do. You do everything else, but not the things which stop the mind or which discipline the mind in one way. The same thing, this is the curse of prayer. In Christian monasteries, it is known. Monks and nuns would do anything to avoid prayer. 
they are there to do prayer. And they do anything but not prayer. They do social work, they do charity, they do gardening, they do carpentry, they do whatever they do. But just sitting on your knees in the diamond pose and doing one hour of prayer, they don't do that. Very few do. The history of all these places where prayer and meditation is done is full exactly with this story. That people, either they go crazy or they run away or they start cheating or they don't do it. Because of this. So remember that prayer is the highest power. Ultimately, prayer means that a human being can talk directly to God. Activating your heart chakra by doing bhujangasana is a worthy exercise. Talking to God for one hour is an even more worthy exercise. No, It's because you are going straight to the point. Straight, like no beating around the bush. That's like going straight. That's why it is the action which encounters the greatest opposition. People are constantly postponing prayer. Because one hour of prayer, compare one hour of prayer with one hour of other things. One hour of asanas. In the asanas you may focus well, you may not focus so well. Sometimes you activate your Manipura Chakra because you do Danurasana or something and then you have too much adrenaline and your Manipura Chakra is not yet pure and not yet balanced and then you snap at your brother or sister or something and you become aggressive and you become an asshole. So working one hour on Manipura did have an effect but not necessarily a very divine effect. No? Because you are stumbling. But prayer... You can't go wrong, almost. That's why it's not being done. It's constantly replaced by something else. It's a well-known thing that in Christian monasteries, prayer is the least done thing, while it would be supposed to be done day and night. So, the art of prayer is a great thing, and uh, sometimes yogis... Uh, do it. I remember of a yogi who was practicing uh, different cities, trying to obtain some astral projection and vision of Shambhala and so on. And he, at some point he wrote in his personal diary that he felt very agitated and troubled. And before doing his yoga, he did half an hour of prayer. And then he could do yoga brilliantly. That's exactly where the East joins the West and where Bhakti gets its place that we are doing things with the heart, from the heart. <clears throat> Typical for esoteric Christianity is the fact that a lot of action, especially for the outside people, is done through empowered rituals or rites. Like... Exception made, like for example, in traditional Christianity, perhaps the most powerful sacrament which they have 
is the communion. The communion meaning that the priest is blessing in a special way wine, red wine and bread. And those are supposed to symbolically and for some people literally to become the blood and flesh of Christ. And by eating that bread with wine, you are communing with Christ. It's like a piece of Jesus Christ is coming inside you. And then it has the same effect like a graft in agriculture. That if you take a bastardized apple tree and in it you put a little splinter of a Granny Smith or Jonathan apple, that apple turns into a Jonathan apple tree just because it has a splinter of it. That's called grafting in agriculture. So the communion is like being grafted with Jesus. You put a drop of Jesus in you and then you become a Jesus. Like you turn from a bastard apple, from a crab apple tree, you turn into a Granny Smith or Jonathan or Golden, what Golden Delicious and so on. It's the same principle. So the most important sacrament is this communion. That's the central sacrament of Christianity, which is supposed to be done every Sunday for normal people. It's the Sunday morning mass is around this sacrament. No? And this, for example, there have been monks and nuns who lived in the wilderness. And they never got a priest to come every Sunday to give them a ritual. So they didn't have any, any wine and any bread. Some of these people lived in the wilderness. They didn't have food. They ate some wild food, mushrooms from the forest and things like this. Like they were not having food. So how did they get the communion? Isn't communion important for the hermits as well? Aren't they supposed to commune with Jesus? And the Christian mystics say there are those who commune in church through a ritual. And there are those who commune by prayer. You don't need to physically eat something. Prayer is creating the state of resonance between you and Jesus. And then you are attuned to Jesus naturally. I remember a wild story of a female saint called Theodora. Who, whose leftovers, the body is somewhere in Ukraine, in Kiev, in a monastery from there. After death, it has been taken there. And this Theodora, they discovered her because in a nearby monastery, somewhere in the mountains, in the Carpathian Mountains, a monk saw that birds were coming through the window and they were stealing the communion from the altar. Like there was the communion left in the altar and birds were coming and picking up that bread with wine and they were flying away with it. And then this guy took a stick and started walking through the forest following the birds. And he walked like 15 kilometers and he reached to a cave where there was a woman, Theodora, and the birds were bringing her communion from the church. And this is how she was discovered, because otherwise nobody knew that there was a woman in the forest alone in that place. So that's why I say there is here this aspect in the Christianity which is more difficult to understand that the way of acting for some people was through their personal practice, like for Theodora, 
Theodora got divine communion just by her being in a cave and praying all day long. And other people who lived in a village somewhere, they got it like a ritual on Sunday, brought down to their understanding in a much more simplified way and for their uh, level of practice. And this simply says that you find some rituals, rites, which are the equivalent of magic, only it's a divine magic. You find uh, services for the dead. And many people today believe that the services for the dead are just a superstition and they are not necessary. I hope those of you in this room who attended the art of dying, you understood how far from the truth that is, and that actually some of the rituals for the dead, like the Tibetan bardo todol, or other such things, they are of an incredible efficiency and power, and they have effect upon the astral body, and they have effect on the soul, even after the body is dead, and they produce incredible, effective effects. I remember, just to give you an example, one of these guys, I have known one of these guys who had lived in the forest for a lifetime and had done prayer and so on, and he had an extraordinary clairvoyance, he had a peculiar form of clairvoyance, and people were in the communist times, this was happening in Romania in the communist times, and people were sending him letters, help me with this, help me with that, and a couple of people who were the friends of, a pup of the pupils of a friend of mine, so I knew these guys, I didn't know the people of whom I'm talking, but they were friends of somebody whom I knew, and this is how I know the story. So I know it secondhand like a true story. They send a letter in which they complained about a domestic trouble, living with some in-laws in the same house, and some of them having stolen their wedding rings, and like, like real tiny, ugly, little, like nothing spiritual or some like domestic squabbles. Life in a cup of tea, you know, like a very, very small life with very, very small unimportant issues. And they wrote to this guy with a photo. And this guy looked and then he had a young monk who was his assistant. And in some cases he answered when he had to give some special advice about what to do. And he wrote to this guy, your issue which of course in a big picture it was completely unimportant that they couldn't find their wedding rings or signs. Like it's, no, the world is not going to die because of that. But he said, your issue, he answered very committed. And he said, your issue is going to be solved. I pray for the solving of it. And actually by the time they received the answering letter, it was solved already. So he said, your issue is going to be solved. But... This is the earth-shattering statement. As I can see from your photo that you are not legally married in church. Like you are married only in the town hall by a turkey with a tricolor band around his shoulder. You are not properly married. You are having a civil marriage which is just masturbation. It's nothing. 
he didn't use the word masturbation. That's my license to it. And he said, I can see that you are, so you should never write to me again before you get properly married, because from my standpoint, you are living in whoredom. You are not married people. You may love each other and have your family, but you are not married in the way in which I condone marriage. And therefore, please don't write to me again. This man could look at a photo and see that a man and a woman were married or not. Which means if you are clairvoyant and somebody is married in the town hall and somebody is married in the church, there is a difference in the aura of those people. And this man could see it just by looking at a photo like this. And it's true, they were not married in the church. And they went quickly and they got married in the church, you know, to have a real marriage. So, that's why I'm saying there are services like baptism, services for the dead, marriage, others and others, which are working through a ritual power, which is depending on what the Christian churches call apostolic continuity. Like, where does that power come from? It comes from the fact that Jesus promised it, and Jesus was a very special person when he did the promise, it really worked. Jesus promised it to the apostles. And he said, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you do and undo, shall be done and undone on earth and in heaven. Remember, Jesus is mentioned to have promised it with his own mouth. And therefore, Peter and Paul and the others, as much as some people hate them and dislike them, they had a personal gift from Jesus. And they were allowed to give it further. And they gave it. And it has been given from person to person since Jesus until today. But unfortunately, not everywhere. Like the Coptic Egyptian priests from Egypt, there is a Christian minority in Egypt of about 10% of the population of Egypt. They are called Copts, Coptic Christians. They get it from the apostles. The Syrian Maronites, the Christians which were killed in the Syria, were abundantly in the last 5-10 years. Most of the dead people in that war are Christians, actually. So, the Christian Maronites, the Armenian Church, the Georgian Church, and others, the Nestorians of Kerala in India, and others, they got it directly from an apostle of Christ. And they got it man to man, man to man, man to man, man to man until today. But there are others who did not. And that is valid especially since the starting of the Protestant churches. Like Martin Luther was not, he was a sort of a de, how you say, declassified or de, he lost his priesthood. Henrik VIII, who became the chief of the Anglican church, he was not a priest. 
So all these people and many, many others which followed after them, they didn't have the right to be priests or to anoint priests. Today, nobody seems to care about this anymore. There are about 3,000 Christian denominations, and out of them only about 10 have apostolic succession. Like they have direct lineage from Jesus and the apostles until today. About 2,990 Christian denominations, from Adventists to Mormons and from, I don't know, Seventh-day Evangelists to you name it, they don't have that lineage. They are cut off. So the problem, one of the major problems which exists in the esoteric part of Christianity is, for example, if you are a Protestant, and I'm, I know that that is rising hell, no. If you are a Protestant, and if you are baptized, can it be seen in your aura? <coughs> or you are actually not baptized? If you would go to the Orthodox Church of Russia, which is one of the apostolic churches, and let's say you are a Catholic, a Roman Catholic, and you simply say, I'm fed up with the Catholic Church, I want to become Russian Orthodox. They will make a service where they will mark the fact that you are crossing. Like you are crossing from Catholic to Orthodox. They give you a blessing, they make a special ceremony. But they don't put you in the water again. Because although they don't like the Catholic Church, they nevertheless have to admit that if you have been baptized by a Catholic priest, you actually are baptized. But if you are a protestant from Denmark, and you go to Russia and you say, I want to become Russian Orthodox, they baptize you from scratch, because they consider that you are not even baptized. Actually, you have been baptized in a protestant church, but that doesn't matter. It's zero. It's, you know, that's why the congresses of religion where the Pope meets with this and that, they are worth nothing. Because essentially, people know some esoteric things which make the whole difference. And there is no way to make peace between these things. It's just political correctness that the Pope meets with the Russian Patriarch and they shake hands at a religion congress and, and they think maybe in 200 years the religion will be completely, 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 completely peaceful with each other. It cannot. The Jews are waiting for the Messiah. That's the essence of the Jewish religion. Who is supposed to be a descendant of King David. The Christians claim that Jesus was that Messiah. And that half of the Israelis caught that train... And half of the Israelis missed that train. So the question is, was Jesus the Messiah? Because you can't say, for some he was, for some he wasn't. It's like that stupid joke where George is asked, was your wife a virgin when you took her in marriage? And he says, mm, some people claim she was, some people claim she wasn't. No? That's... Just a ridiculous joke. Yeah? Because basically, it can't be one way or the other. 
as it is convenient and politically correct for some people, so we don't offend their susceptibilities. Either Jesus was the Messiah, and then the Jewish religion is dead. It's praying to a wall. It's nothing in it, because the Messiah already came. Or Jesus was not the Messiah, and then the Christians are playing, praying to a bastard, who was a fake who was not what he said he was. So it's as simple as that. In religion, even inside Christianity, as I said, these apostolic, these rituals, this empowerment, it works or it doesn't work. When a priest takes a little child and blesses a pot of water, a jar of water, and then he says, this child is being baptized in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit... That's either a social mimicry, it's either a caricature and theater, theatrical, and it actually does nothing, or it has an effect on the aura of that child, it does something to the soul of that child, and then we're talking about the divine magic there. And who taught them how to make a baptism? Who invented the words which are said from one end to the other? Always the same words for a baptism. Who, who gave authority to the mouth who said and wrote down those words that when you, when the right person tells them, they will produce this effect? This is very interesting in esoteric. It's one of the most esoteric and troubling things because either these rituals are all of them just theater, cheap theater, and they have no function. They, nothing really happens. Or if they have an effect, where is that power coming from? How is that power? Because most often, for example, Christian priests, even from this apostolic sect, some of them are idiots, half morons, drinking, you know, eat, not having any particular dietary discipline, you know, dancing, going to parties, you know, it's like, and then suddenly they put a thing on them, and then they can baptize your baby. That's a strange power. Where does it come from? Or there is no power whatsoever. So that's why I am calling your attention on this, because even this aspect of magic, there is a sort of a divine magic, a sort of a white magic, with communion, with baptism, with funeral services, and requiems, and others, with whatever, lighting candles, offering food uh, by direct consecration and by indirect consecration, mm, other and other holy oils and other and other rituals which are there, and uh, many many things. Like for example, even the Christian tradition admits that something strange happens at about forty days after death. And there are special rituals which are done 40 days after someone's death, which is coinciding perfectly 
with the yogic teachings about the etheric body, and which is coinciding perfectly for those of you who did the Art of Dying workshop, with the Tibetan teachings about the bardo, the period of the bardo, that the soul is in the bardo, and what's happening during that period of bardo. <coughs> and thus, I hope I managed in this uh, rather long discourse tonight, um, that I managed to convey to you the two aspects, one of the internal dimension of the practice, that one should reconsider permanently love, aspiration, devotion, humbleness, modesty, the great virtues which come from the heart, and at the same time, understanding the fact that in every religion, we find the same esoteric principles, which are camouflaged so that the masses don't see that there is something there. Jesus was asked, why do you always talk in parables? You talk obliquely, you give funny examples, strange examples. And he said, I talk to them indirectly, so that hearing they shall not understand. Like they will hear the parable, but they will never dig into it deeper to see what the real meaning is and what's the cosmic law. The cosmic laws were explained to a handful of people. That's called esoteric teaching, which in Greek means inner circle. And then when you have 100 million people that learn something, like in Buddhism as well, those people don't learn Vipassana and other things. Those people learn the Four Noble Truths, morality, some elements about the laws of karma, and the general rule, behave. Be a nice person, create merit, live a virtuous life, and don't create bad karma because you're going to go to hell if you create bad karma when you die. We will go to hell. No? This is exoteric. It's for everybody. A hundred million people can learn that and it's a very good teaching. But there will be in those 100 million, there will be a thousand who will know more. And that's esoteric. That's the inner circle. With yoga, we always make you accustomed to the esoteric teachings because yoga is not for the masses. Today, more than 300 million people are practicing yoga. But three, 290,000 or million of those, they are practice gymnastic yoga. That's why there is so much gymnastic yoga. Gymnastic yoga is like the equivalent of an exoteric religion. It's something which can go to hundreds of millions. But the principles, the secrets about the chakras and those things, they reach to a few thousand people. That's the percentage. That's esoteric. And that's not because I want it to be so. I'm not reveling in it. I would like to cry the truths about metaphysics and spirituality from the rooftops to the whole world to here. But there are karmic laws about the circulation of information into humanity, which makes that even information doesn't run freely, doesn't flow freely. And that's why there will always be in every society 
either Islamic or Jewish or Christian or Buddhist or Hindu. There will be the people who follow the condensed path, the concentrated path, the esoteric path. Then there will be the path for many, which is small doses. Small doses for many, many, many people. And this is why I wanted to bring you again to the understanding both of the esoteric aspects from Christianity and Western mysticism, because most of the things about prayer, and you find them in Judaism, you find them in Islam, and so on, in all the religions, and at the same time, to renew for you this, in the end of this season, because for some of you it's the end of the season, the season is not over, we are here the whole year, and teaching, but to bring back to you to reconsider your own relationship with your own heart, with your own love, and with your own aspiration. In the moment when you come to practice your own spirituality like a chore, then you are not in the heart anymore. You are not doing it from the heart. You lost something very important. So evaluate and make sure that whatever you do, you do it from your heart, singing, and that you fulfill the will of God out of love. And therefore that puts you in the position that you are not the slaves of God and you are not the merchants of God. You are the children of God. You are the sons of God. And thus, when done in the right way like this, everything is good. Cultivate the virtues of the heart. I'm going to do a lecture in the beginning of... Uh, January, where I will remind once more, I intend to do that at least once every season, to remind once more about the values of the heart, the psychology of the heart, the spirituality done in the heart, because it's like Paul says in the Bible, if I speak the languages of angels and if I have knowledge of past, present and future, and if I don't have love, then he says, I'm nothing. Because the prophecies will disappear, the languages appear and disappear, but the only thing which lasts forever is the divine nature of love. And therefore, whatever we do without love, it's just a chore. It's just a transient, mortal thing. That's why our own spirituality our own relationship with ourselves, with our teachers, with our school, is it has to be from the heart. It has to be something from the heart, because then it takes us in the right place. With this, let us conclude for tonight. I st we started a bit late and I went late. I hope it is not too late. I'll try to keep it in time for the next weeks. Thank you all for joining tonight, and with this we have finished. If any of these satsangs are giving you questions or they make you investigate and go deeper in some things, always remember that those of you who are in level 2 and above, you can always bring up, write down some questions, because satsangs are without questions, they are just a discourse. But you can always bring questions on Tuesdays when there are Q&A sessions, and then we can continue this kind of discussions. Enough for tonight. See you all in the coming events, Q&A, satsangs and others.